I'd like to welcome you all to our Kalyanamita workshop this morning. Um, it's just wonderful to see all of you here, and we're just uh, delighted to have uh, the opportunity to have Donald Rothberg and Don Neal speak to us about um, the, the practicalities of working in groups in terms of wise speech and um, actually mindfulness and all the things that go into that vis-a-vis uh, Kalyanamita groups. So um, uh, just a couple logistical things here first. I'd like uh, to remind everybody to just make sure those cell phones are off. We have uh, water close to the front door if anybody would like to get themselves a cup of water at some point, and the restrooms are just down the hall here. Um, we will be passing the mic around at some point for people to, to offer their thoughts and share their opinions about things. When we do that, just remember to hold the mic like an ice cream cone right up close to your face. And um, I wanted to say that uh, we were delighted to, to offer this workshop to Kalyanamita facilitators, hosts, and people who are interested in doing so as part of a, uh, a larger um, program that Spirit Rock offers to people in the Kalyanamita network. We hope to keep all of you connected uh, to support your work together and to help you uh, make this um, sangha as rich as you as you possibly can. So anyway, please uh, please welcome Donald Rothberg and Don Neal. Don is an expert in um, group dynamics, and um, he uh, has a huge amount of experience as well as Don, which they will both introduce about themselves here in a little bit. But in the meantime, I'm going to turn this over to them. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. Thanks, um, thanks, Melanie. And um, we're going to do a um, longer introductions about the day and about ourselves after um, it's said a little bit. Um, my experience is that a third of the group will come in in the first fifteen or twenty minutes. So, but we will start with meditation. As we continue to sit quietly, I'd like to invite uh, a silent reflection for each of us on what brings us here today, our motivation for being here to explore some of this territory of cultivating wise speech, particularly in the context of groups. So just to invite what your interest and motivation are for being here for about a minute or two. So welcome everyone. My name is Dawn Neal. Can you hear me in the back? Good. Okay. I'm really excited to be here today. I'm a relatively new member to the Kalyanamita community, but I am an experienced practitioner. 
and I also happen to be a coach and a facilitator and a meditation instructor. And it brings me special joy to combine the spiritual world with my professional world and share a little bit of what I've picked up over the years of working in corporate environments, creative environments, educational environments with different groups and different people. Some of my training is in conflict resolution, so that's going to come through in some of the subject matter. And um, what else to say? I think that's it. Thank you for being here. And we're especially interested in not just being the experts today, in really having you contribute your wisdom about your experience in spiritual community to the dialogue. So I invite you to do that. And I'll introduce myself briefly. My name's uh, Donald Rothberg. It's good to see a lot of uh, familiar faces. And I'm um, also very pleased to be here and collaborate with Don. We've been having fun um, cooking up what we're serving today. <laughs> and um, I'm also pleased to connect with the Kalyanamita Network. I actually helped uh, start it about 20 years ago. I was one of those people who was involved with the starting of the whole um, network a long time ago and um, guided Julie Wester and I guided an early Kalyanamita group which was called Walk Like a Bodhisattva. There was a rock and roll song you may remember of that title which we used as the title of our group. So um, I'll just say a few words about my background. I've um, had a strong interest for a long time both in speech practice and in um, working in groups. And for those whom I haven't met, I'm a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council and um, have developed and t- co-taught four times uh, what's now a seven-day retreat called Mindfulness, Wise Speech, and uh, Compassionate Communication, which uh, doesn't actually go into the group area, but it's been a very strong interest of mine. And I think of my own personal practice as having... Uh, a key aspect being my speech practice. Like whenever I'm talking, something clicks and okay. And there's a sense of a formal practice, some of which we'll get into today, some of not, not so much. And also I've had a strong interest in groups and uh, also worked a lot with um, issue of conflict and uh, have done some weekends on uh, basically mindfulness and group dynamics. Uh, some of which will come come in today. And maybe last thing to say is that um, um, you know, although I have a very deep love of retreat practice and I spend a pretty good chunk of my life in silence, not interacting in groups, um, I've also had a, a long-term interest and have been involved with actually three uh, training programs, as some of you know, for people to connect inner and outer work in the context of social service and social change. The last of which was at Spirit Rock called the Path of Engagement, the two-year program. So just a few minutes um, of logistics. The uh, flow of the day is broken up into a few parts. The first half of the workshop we're going to be covering individual wise speech practice, which is something Donald will give an overview for. I'll be going over wise speech guidelines and groups, and then we'll have a few minutes for some interactive exercises 
some Q&A and a break. For those of you who are not familiar with this space, there are waters just outside the door, I believe, and then the bathrooms are down the hall, just to your left. Turn right outside the door, and then the bathrooms are on the left. After the break, we'll be moving on to speech in challenging situations. And um, I'll do a little bit of a segment on how to practice individually when emotions are running high or you're feeling triggered or someone else is feeling triggered. And then Donald will cover, as he mentioned, a little bit about group dynamics and group-wise speech practice. Then we'll have a little bit more of interactive work, a scenario or two, and time for a little bit of Q&A. So we're excited to have you here. Could I add just a little bit? Sure. We're, we're very aware that we have three hours, and these are large <laughs> subject matter. For our seven-day retreat, we have about 30 hours of materials, and we don't even get into the context of groups. It's just individual practice. So we're trying to um, get the essence of what we want to share today. And we're also open to the possibility of this being the first of a series. Because we're very aware of there being a lot of different areas for for this topic. Should I go ahead now? Please. Segment. You know, I was. Um, I think I. I think I'll use a few minutes of my presentation time because I think it'd be actually good to just hear uh, a few statements of what intentions are. And one of the things we're going to try to model, since a lot of the Kalyanamita groups are co-facilitated, we're going to try to model collaborative, on-the-spot decision making. <laughs> okay, and. Um, checking in and these sort of things, and we may do it well or not well, but um, hopefully pretty well. And so, um, but I was thinking that it'd be very nice just to hear if you could think, if you could, we could have a few people, and maybe you could state your intention. If you can say it in one sentence, that would really be helpful, like why you're here. And if you could hear from a few people, I think that would be very helpful. And well, the other thing before we do that is just to say that we are recording this. And the whole um, workshop will be on Dharma Seed, so publicly accessible, unless something really bad happens. <laughs> we can edit that out. Or really, really good, and then we want to <laughs> sell it or something. Okay, so um, is there someone who's going to be able to walk around? Okay, so maybe just here for three or four people, if you could just say why you're here, and, and if you could really do it in a sentence, that would be great. We have some time to hear from a number of people. What brings you here? What do you, you know, and, and also maybe say your name as you're, as you're doing that. Thank you, Jeremy. 
Thank you. Others, and if, if you could do the one-sentence discipline, that would be great. Ice cream cone. Yeah, yeah. To be in difficult conversations, but not, uh, but uh, not, but be careful when you're triggered, right? Yeah, great. You one or two more? Anyone else want to share? Please. Maybe one last in the background. Thank you. So a few words um, to start us off just on speech practice. And I'll I'll be particularly focusing on speech practice that we do, as it were, individually. Because in a way, we have to develop our speech practice as something that we do in all sorts of different contexts and have that become strong before we can really uh, have that be effective in a group context. And it's, it's helpful to look at what is speech practice in general, and then we'll also talk about what, it, what are the mm, adjustments or modifications or additions that we make when we bring speech practice into a group context. As I mentioned in my, in my self-introduction, I, I think that speech practice is one of the crucial areas of practice for those of us in this culture right now. And yet it's also uh, something that's not so clearly outlined always as to how we do it. How do we actually take our moments of speech and have that be, in a way, just as rigorous and just as fundamental a part of our practice as our time on the cushion. It's, uh, and part of what we'll do today is to offer some of that. I'm, again, I'm very aware that um, were we to do this fully, we would go into a lot of areas that we're not going into. One of the areas that I've been very, very interested in terms of speech practice is how we can have speech practice be also a mindfulness practice in which there's inner and outer attention at the same time which is challenging, but it starts to um, break down some of the barriers that we sometimes have between here I'm on the cushion, here I'm not on the cushion. Well, we won't be doing that today. (laughs) um, Some of you may have explored that some, but but um, uh, some of it will come in implicitly because when we talk about what do you do when you're triggered in a group, for example, 
one has to have some mindfulness there to work with that. But there, there are a lot of things we could talk about that would be, very, that would be rather more uh, detailed. And there are a lot of aspects about groups that we won't be bringing in as well. So it's a vast area. We're, I just want to mark that. And yet we want to touch what we think uh, is essential. It's crucial partly because when we can take our speech practice as practice, many of us, some of whom sometimes complain about not having enough time for practice. Anyone complain about not having enough time for practice here? A small percentage raised their hand. Okay, now, uh, adjusted poll. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it's a big issue for most people that I know. And, and yet, if we can have our speech practice be feel from the inside to be just as rigorous a part of our practice as our time on the cushion, many of us have five to ten hours a day. Mm. You know. So um, it actually, the potential is very great. And we also know that's, that having a sense of practice and speech is so crucial because... Basically because um, kind words can be so healing and sometimes uh, words that come out automatically or reactively or when we're triggered can be connected with a lot of um, suffering. And we know that on the larger scale words can cause wars. But words can also be so healing that we, we know that um, when, I'll speak for myself, when I'm in a difficult place, just another person who's, who has kind words or shows understanding or empathy can make incredible difference, incredible impact for basically kind speech practice. And so it's a very, it's a very powerful area. One of my favorite uh, ways of showing the importance of this practice is from a New Yorker cartoon, which shows a uh, woman sitting on a couch uh, across from her standing is someone who looks like uh, a detective. He's got a pad and is writing notes. Behind the couch, there are some legs protruding on the floor, and also behind the couch is a, a policeman who's standing and looking at the situation, and the New Yorker cartoon caption uh, shows the words of the woman. She says, he misspoke, I misheard, shots rang out. <laughs> Well, how many of you can relate to that? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very, very common. So, again, I've basically found there to be two foundational practices for our speech. One we might call grounding ethically, and the second is cultivating mindfulness in our speech, and they're interrelated. So the ethical guidelines are what we, I think of it as the main contribution that we actually get from Buddhist tradition. And some of you who've read some of the texts on wise speech know that there are a number of different criteria, which I interpret primarily as ethical criteria. In other words, they are behavioral guidelines for speech. And I like to summarize them as being fourfold. And they're, they're on one of the handouts, so you don't have to take notes necessarily. They're, they're fourfold they're the invocation to be truthful, to be helpful, to come out of a warm heart, and to have a certain appropriateness. Often in the text, uh, 
good timing is suggested is, is very, very crucial. And what's very basic about these four guidelines is that they all have to be there. One can be very truthful and not necessarily helpful. One can be very truthful and not necessarily come out of a warm heart. And we know that we can actually use truthfulness sometimes as a weapon. You know, and uh, sometimes it's called dumping, you know, where we say the truth and we somehow, we, we ourselves think ethically, okay, I can do anything because it's the truth, right? And we may think that to ourselves or rationalize that to ourselves, but the kind of the brilliance and the subtlety of bringing these all together says that no, truthfulness is very, very crucial, but it's not enough. That all four of these guidelines have to be there. And a lot of our practice is to see which of these we're good at individually. And I think when we talk about groups, we also want to understand what do these four guidelines mean in group context? So we can look at truthfulness. And, you know, there, we have the general guideline, but of course there's a lot of subtlety to the guideline. And we don't necessarily, what does, what does being truthful mean in terms of, um, let's say, omissions? And so the guideline, in a way, is an invitation to mindfulness. And when we take on speech practice, part of what we do with the guidelines is that we let them be there almost like radar. You know? And so we have them. I have, you know, by my telephone, I have these four guidelines up. And so there was one time when I was working with a group for about six months, uh, every two weeks on wise speech, and that's when I put the guidelines up by my telephone, and I would, I would be there, and I would... A telephone would ring, and I would go, truthful, helpful good heart, good timing, hello, <laughs> something like that. that and, and they actually can be very valuable to uh, work with those kind of guidelines. Um, individually, sometimes when I'm in group context, I do individual practice where I write down on a sheet of paper the guidelines, have them right in front of me when I'm practicing. Um, I was with a non-Buddhist group where we were having a lot of communication difficulties and we had a committee that got together to decide about how to, bring, how to bring about better communication in the group. I brought these guidelines, and uh, the group agreed, and the whole larger group agreed, the committee agreed, and the larger group agreed to work with these guidelines. So I was asked at the beginning of all of our meetings, which we had usually had monthly meetings, about five or six hours, and they would ask me, we had a, a flip chart, and we'd write these guidelines down on there, and we'd talk about them at the beginning of every meeting and make a commitment to them for the group. I mean, it's an obvious possible technique for Kalyanamita groups to work with the guidelines, to talk about them, and to make a commitment. When I was with, um, on the Buddhist Peace Fellowship Board, where I was for about nine or ten years, we did something very similar. And we'll talk about group guidelines later, but we can use these individual guidelines both for our individual practice, but we can also bring them into groups. Um, and we can look, we can use the guidelines also for this, what I'm calling the second broad area of mindfulness practice considered individually, which is, uh, or of speech practice, which is um, cultivating mindfulness. And we can use these individual guidelines if we take them seriously and really commit to them. 
they they act kind of like radar or like uh, like a, a little um, bell rings when we're in the territory maybe of not being entirely truthful or not so helpful or not coming out of a warm heart, you know. And we we you know. Um, my friend Diana Winston, who also teaches at Spirit Rock, she says she wants to write a book called, I don't know if this is right speech, but, which is a good, <laughs> it's a good sign of something. So we kind of use these guidelines for radar. And we can actually uh, bring the mindfulness into the situation uh, when we notice ourselves about to um, speak in ways which go against that. Maybe just one or two more words, and I'll turn it over to Dawn. Uh, One thing that's important to say is that the guideline of coming out of a warm heart doesn't at all mean that we're nice all the time. Niceness is a, what, um, Buddhist disease. (laughs) Western Buddhist disease, right? So to speak. You know what I'm saying? Do I need to explicate that? No. Okay. Um, Okay. Okay. Uh, I have to convince you, but but the point is that that um, sometimes we interpret that sense of loving kindness or warm heart as meaning that we shy away from difficult conversations, or that we don't act in a firm way, or that we don't speak very strongly when the situation demands it. And I just want to say right away, we can come back to this because one of the issues in groups is how do you work with challenging situations where some very clear boundary or some strong statement is needed. And that can, one of the challenges is how does that coexist with coming out of a warm heart? That's something we can can look at later. And so we use these guidelines partly to cultivate mindfulness. And then this other piece, which maybe I'll bring in from time to time, but not so much in a full way, is that we also try to cultivate the capacity to have awareness that's of an inner nature as we're interacting. Not easy. There are a lot of foundational requirements for having that really get stabilized, like being grounded in the body. But that becomes essential when we're taking on speech practice in a sustained way, to have some way to track what's going on inside, even as you're also interacting. Not easy at all. Not, not a beginning practice. So with that, I'll turn it over to, to Dawn. Thank you, Donald. So for the next few minutes, I'm just going to elaborate on what Donald started to talk about with guidelines, group guidelines in particular. I'm going to sketch out three areas, some characteristics of effective guidelines, a few examples of widely used group norms, and... um, some ways to instill these guidelines into your groups so that they become part of the group culture going forward. Effective guidelines have a few things in common. First, they're fair. The content of group rules that are fair encourage an equal playing field for everyone and provide some kind of objective standard. And um, this is particularly important, for example, in spelling how conflict will be dealt with in advance. Um, An example of that would be, are the facilitators empowered to be in a neutral decision-making role, for example? 
A second characteristic of effective guidelines is that they're flexible. They're not just some kind of recipe that you blindly follow. There's a paradigm in the facilitation world that considers groups to be living dynamic systems. And living systems, like groups, are more robust and they do better if the rules they're based on are actually grounded in clear principles. That way, if the rules need to change, you have some idea of what your compass is when you want to change them. The third attribute of effective guidelines is that they're communicated clearly up front. So this means generating what in the business world is often called buy-in. It's more than just asking someone casually if they've read and understand the guidelines and if they're okay with them. It means that the facilitator or whoever is inviting a new person into a group actually goes as far as to ensure that a person doesn't have any questions with the guidelines, problems with them, that kind of thing. Some groups actually go as far as to request agreement in writing or um, via a post-conversation email where a response to the email actually indicates agreement on the part of a new group member. So you might be wondering what guidelines you're going to be communicating Um, We don't really have time to go through every single possible one, so I'm going to just talk about three general standards that have invited a sense of ease and safety into the groups that I've worked with in the business environments, educational environments, creative classrooms. These standards also work really well when they're followed in spiritual conversations. So the first one is respect confidentiality. The second is speak your own truth and no one else's. And the third is all participate, no one dominate. Confidentiality is fundamental to the safety of any group container. What happens in a Kalyanamita group stays in a Kalyanamita group. This guideline covers the obvious speech precept of avoiding gossip, but there are more subtle versions of it, too. So some groups, for example, request that members ask permission before they talk about any sensitive kind of sharing someone has done in the group if they meet up later. Another more subtle version is respecting group contact information. For example, not adding your new Kalyanamita friends to your latest mass email campaign. Unless, of course, the person asks for that, in which case, go ahead and add them. (laughs) Maintaining confidentiality is also a root condition for a special kind of honesty that can grow up in a group. The guideline that invites this kind of openness is to speak your own truth and nobody else's. To speak your own truth includes several things. The first is to ask directly for what you need. Often, many of us will use hints or indirect questions if we have some issue come up or if there's something that we need in a dynamic. Well, there's well-documented research about the efficacy of hinting, and it's bad news. (laughs) Hinting is the worst understood form of interpersonal communication. (laughs) It is. So um, this is actually especially true if 
the person receiving the hint is of either a higher social status or a more significant social presence than the person offering the hint. So you can imagine how this is going to work if in your Kalyanamita group, your group introvert starts to hint to the group extrovert, the very long-winded group extrovert, that they would like a little bit more airtime. Well, it's really likely that the more talkative person is just not even going to hear it. They're just going to keep right on going. And that will lead your, leave your shyer person feeling understandably put upon, left out, or unheard. So directly stating what is needed is ideal, either for yourself or if that's not available to someone because of their personality as the facilitator. So as the facilitator, if you clearly name what is helpful for the group, it's really a way of creating safety and space for everyone who's there. In the interest of allowing truthfulness, there are also certain kinds of common everyday speech that are best left outside the door of groups. Sarcasm or other unkind forms of humor, even if it's directed at people who aren't present, really erodes other people's ability to show up completely. Um, Hyperbole, half-truths, sweeping generalizations, those kinds of things are a little bit more subtle, but they tend to orient groups more towards, say, witty repartee than open spiritual exploration with each other. So stated positively, to speak your own truth asks each person to show up wholeheartedly to the other people in the group. This includes naming what is important or true, even if it feels uncomfortable. The guideline of your own truth and no one else's, the second part of that statement, is also a reminder that the key to speaking my own truth respectfully is to state what is true for me as my perspective, as I'm saying it. Speaking truth is supported by a third group guideline. It can be summed up also in one phrase, all participate, no one dominate. This includes ground rules like pausing after someone has spoken or not speaking at length without allowing someone else to participate. Actively cultivating curiosity is a really wonderful form of supporting this kind of group participation. And there are some very specific practices you can use to help instill active curiosity in a group. The most important is active listening, which includes three components, inquiry, paraphrasing, and acknowledgement. So first, inquiry. Questions can have many intentions behind them. One intention that's really supportive of open group dialogue is to ask questions to learn and only to learn. So open questions are the key to this. An example of an open question. So does anyone have a notion about blah? Or can you say more about how you're practicing with distraction right now? Open questions don't have any kind of predefined or preferred answer. They don't also don't lead the person down to a particular conclusion. Like, don't you feel angry about that? So one way to frame inquiry is to consider individual views as hypotheses. 
In testing a hypothesis, a scientist asks a question to which they don't already know the answer. They test their assumptions. In group conversation, this respects individual perspectives, and it begins to cultivate a beautiful attitude of free-spirited exploration among the group members. The second act of listening practice is paraphrasing. And by paraphrasing, I don't mean repeating exactly what someone else just said. That's annoying. What I mean is a genuine attempt to check your understanding. Often this involves a brief recap of the main themes of someone's exploration. When paraphrasing is accurate, it has the benefit of showing that you've really heard someone. When it's not accurate, it's also helpful because it gives the other person a chance to say, well, no, that's actually not what I meant. This becomes particularly important if you're disagreeing about something. The third active listening practice is acknowledgement. Acknowledgement can take several forms. It can be as simple as saying thank you after someone has contributed something. It can be as subtle as offering an empathetic nod or a little empathetic sound if someone is sharing something particularly difficult. A very healthy form of acknowledgement in groups is to practice honest and specific appreciation for each other. This could be for someone's sincere intentions. It could be for their idea. It can even be for their mindful, silent presence. The important thing is that it's grounded and that it's specific. Sincerely practiced active listening communicates a deep respect. It says that you care enough to truly listen to someone else instead of using the time to plan for the next thing you're about to say or just waiting for your turn to take the floor. The important thing to know about active listening is that inquiry and paraphrasing and acknowledgement your internal orientation of curiosity or sincerity will come through. When these practices are just used as a technique, they don't work. When most people can actually really easily sense the difference between someone who's a little bit clumsy but trying and someone who's quite slick but is just going through the motions. So these practices are really supportive for the guidelines of all participate, no one dominate, speaking your truth and no one else's. Now I'm just going to offer a couple of minutes about how facilitators can help instill these values into the group process. So sometimes the facilitator's role is really explicit, like in communicating guidelines up front, generating buy-in from new members, that kind of thing. Subtle or direct speech references, as Donald mentioned, can be said at the beginning of a group or scheduled to go out to a group at specific times, like at the New Year, for example. But there are other times when the facilitator's role may be more active as well. When the energies of the group or the contributions of the group are very unbalanced, that's a moment for the facilitator to step in. For example, if someone is being very quiet, you could ask, entire group if someone who hasn't spoken much would like to contribute. Most of the facilitator's role, however, is to implicitly, consciously model skillful communication. If the facilitator consistently enacts the group guidelines, it inspires and reminds everyone else in the group to do so too. So one way of doing this is to start to 
cultivate an internal attitude of optimistic openness for the group. Facilitating can involve being the group memory as well, recapping or clarifying Dharma-related themes, actively using the listening techniques we just went over. They can keep a conversation on track and keep the group from really drifting. When things get energetic, it can be helpful to practice an internal attitude of radical acceptance for whatever is coming up, while you're also maintaining very crisp boundaries. For some people, the act of facilitation even means shifting their internal orientation to assisting the group's unfolding conversation and consciously deciding that the group process is more important than any of their own ideas. This kind of orientation offers a beautiful chance to practice with both wisdom and selflessness. So I just want to mention on the subject of guidelines that we have a couple of sample guideline sets available on the back table. One is a link to the Spirit Rock Kalyana to Work Network guidelines um, on the Spirit Rock website. And the other is a specific set of guidelines that Donald came up with for the base program. And those are available for you if you want to use them as a template. The important thing is however you choose to come up with your guidelines, make them your own by aligning them with whatever the intentions are for your group and for yourself. Thanks, Dawn. Um, I'll just add a few thoughts in a few minutes, and then we'll do an exercise together. Um, Maybe the first thing is that um, really the key is for the members of a group to say, we want our group life to be, in the context of those meeting here, we want the, our group life to be, in a, to be a form of practice. You know, one of the major reasons why uh, groups are difficult, whether Kalyanamita groups or any other groups, is that um, we often go into them without very clear intentions. You think of the different groups you're in and how, how often is there clarity about the intentions of the group, particularly in terms of process, of how we'll be together. A lot of groups maybe are very clear about we want to accomplish these objectives, particularly in a work environment. But how often is there clarity about process, about how we want to be with each other? And so just having that sense of we want our group life to be a form of practice is huge. And it goes a very long way. And some groups may find doing guidelines very helpful. I have Most of the groups I've been with, they're very, very helpful because essentially guidelines are an extension of our intentions. And we can think of what Dawn has been talking about is really an extension of our individual intention practice. How do I work with intentions? And we're bringing intentions into a group context. And we're also, I think, recognizing that, again, this core reason why we're often, even though we're these incredibly brilliant, smart, incredible people, we're often incredibly stupid in groups. I speak for myself. Anyone else occasionally <laughs> notice that? So... Um, it's very interesting. See, how, how do we sometimes mess up so much in groups? 
Well, often it's because there's not clarity of intention. And it's kind of like, okay, practice is on the cushion. Now we're in a group, okay, whatever. Whatever goes. Can people relate to that? Is that resonating some? Or do you have really great clarity of intentions? I have found that it takes work to get there. The guidelines are a really fundamental way to get there. And I think the connection with intention is really, really helpful. To really see this as a matter of uh, the power of intention. We know that's at the center of, of practice in general. Right? Intention is linked with karma. It's right at the center of karma. It's right at the center of what we do to have clarity of intention. And that's what the guidelines potentially express. Um, one way that people can develop guidelines is to take time, especially at the formation at the time of the formation of a group, but it could be really any time, and to take some time to get together and have, as it were, homegrown guidelines. And there may be some groups for whom guidelines feel a lot of spontaneous types will resist the guidelines. Okay, that's okay, maybe, but it's really what's important is that the intentions be there. Guidelines are one core tool. But, for example, the base program, which I mentioned, I think, earlier, we have the handout, of that is a stands for Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement, uh, connect with Buddhist Peace Fellowship. We've done over 30 six-month training programs for people connecting inner and outer work. Usually small groups, eight to 12 people, Buddhist-based, and so forth. And typically, they'd be six-month programs with a weekend retreat to begin the six months, weekend retreat to end, an evening a week, usually one, sometimes two weekend days a month. Pretty, pretty firm structure, pretty strong structure. And um, there's actually, I, I think it's not online anymore. We should get it online. But Diana Winston and I wrote a manual for that program, which has a lot of material on group dynamics and on things related to our day. Um, but what, what we typically would do, and I'll, this will be a segue into the exercise, what we typically do for that first weekend we would take, I don't know if it was the first morning or maybe it was the last morning, like we do Friday evening to Sunday lunch, something like that. And maybe the last morning, after we already got to know each other some, we would do a three-hour process, which the result of which would be to have the group have its own guidelines. It takes time. So we would, you know, we would bring people together in small groups, maybe groups of two or three and we'd ask them to say, what really for you helps there be an effective group? And or a group in which you can feel safe and full. What's, what hasn't worked for you in the past? What works the best? And then we'd, we designed a three-hour process which had the result of tabulating all these guidelines and having buy-in by the end of the three hours. And then we would have that in place right at the beginning of a group. Well, that's something that one can do at the beginning of a group. It does take some time. Uh, and then we would have it there, and we could have those guidelines like as a living document. Some of them would be vague. We wouldn't know exactly what they meant. What does it mean to treat someone with respect? Okay, what does that mean? So we'd, we'd sometimes unpack them when situations came up, but they'd be there to refer to at heated moments. Really important. So when, you know, we'd have them there, like the guidelines we have here. We'd have... Um, um, cultivate active listening was one of our guidelines. And so at a given moment, if someone just jumps in and doesn't appear to be actively listening, one could raise and say, hey, didn't we all agree to active listening? And then the person who 
jumped in and would say, oh yes, I was just, I was off. Very easy. Settled, not, not, not so easy. So we want to do an exercise that actually starts, would be something that one might do at the beginning of a group. So here's the exercise. Uh, uh, do two steps to get into it. We'll be going into groups of three. So why don't, yeah, why don't we first form into a group of three and situate your chairs or your cushions in physical proximity right now? Introduce yourselves and await instructions. <laughs> Raise your hand if you have an incomplete group. Okay. I see two groups of two. What about this gentleman back here? Yeah. Okay, raise your hand if you have an incomplete group. Okay. If necessary, there could be a group of four. I see a group of two and a group of two in the back. Okay. Raise your hand if you have an incomplete group. Well, it looks like we... Yeah, it looks like we have a perfect... What, what would we call it? The group is divisible by three. <laughs> okay. So, introduce yourselves briefly. Just say your name. Okay, everyone done that? Okay, so here are the, here are the first instructions. Reflect, this is, this is one where I'll ask you to go inside, so each person go inside for a few moments. What guideline or guidelines, one or two at the most, are most helpful to you or would be most helpful to you in the kind of Dharma group that you most would want? Reflect on one or two guidelines. And so here are the instructions. I'd like to give each person in the threesome naturally three minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, three minutes to talk about your guideline. And you might bring up why those guidelines are important. It'd be fine to talk about groups you've been in where the guidelines haven't been followed or haven't been the norm. Whatever you'd like to talk about related to your guidelines. And if we could have... Uh, one member of the group uh, could take uh, notes about what the guidelines are that you mention, and we'll probably have a few people report, not everyone, but a few people report. So if one person could volunteer to uh, be a scribe, and then and you, you get to go last. <laughs> okay, so you know, quick volunteer for that. And then otherwise, just work out who's going to go first quickly, and then I'll, I'll ring the bell at three minutes when we're to switch. Okay? Let me just ask, are the instructions clear enough? So as to talk about the guideline, have a recording. Okay, so we'll start with the first person right now. And I'll ring a bell when we switch.
So let's have the first person finish up and move to the second person now. So to move on to the third person. So even if you're in the midst of uh, brilliantly outlining the guidelines that will save the planet, uh, we'll ask you to finish, um, say thanks to your group partners, and we'll come back to the whole group. So I'm wondering if we can get a volunteer to scribe a little bit of this on um, the flip chart while while we're facilitating, just a couple of sentences worth. Anybody? That's okay. Or I can do it as well. Donald can do it. Okay, so um, group scribes. Can we hear from one or two people just a sentence? Yes. So share time fairly for the speakers and don't hog the floor. Great. We could use our microphone. Um, you, yes. You know, if we use the microphone, it actually gets recorded. So. Our, our mic person is. Yes, our mic person's writing. No, it's, it's not on right now. Okay. Here. You raise your hand. I can just repeat. Confidentiality is important in establishing a foundation of safety so that it would allow each person to speak one's own truth. Thank you. Thank you. How about one more? Yes, in the back. Speak with a kind heart. Beautiful. Speak with a kind heart. And now just more generally, people can um, give the guidelines they wrote down or if there are other things that are coming up for you um, in the black. Share responsibility for enforcing the guidelines. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Safety was one of ours, and it was embellished to say um, to have speaking from the heart level and the freedom to understand, the freedom from attack, um, that everyone had the highest intention. The highest intention. Beautiful. Here in the front. Authenticity. Um, so, um, speaking from the heart. Great. And did you have your hand up? No. Okay. Oh, ouch. Oh, I'm sorry.
can remember what I was going to say. But the, our group talked a lot about authenticity. That means sometimes there's a tendency for people to speak what they've heard from elsewhere, and it's not their personal experience. And, and, that, and you can tell. Uh, so that's... Beautiful. So speaking from your own personal direct experience. Yeah. And we can now, if you want to share some of the guidelines your group came up with, or if there's anything else that is up for you, please. Anything from you know the other, the other material that we've presented, if there was a question of clarification or some other point or question. In the front? Here. Uh, Carolyn. Yeah. Um, I think my partners came up with two uh, Good things. One was uh, to speak with a heartfelt, non-egoic sincerity, and the other one was about a common intention to be present. For myself, I said um, I want to focus more on active listening and modeling, and just worrying about what I'm doing. Great. Thank you. My name is Allison. I really appreciate leaving the silence between the speakers mm-hmm. because that's one of the ways I ground and the group grounds. And it leads into the ability to do a lot of these other things. Great. That's, uh, I just want to say a word about that. That's a great point. And probably one of the very interesting mindfulness practices in groups is to, to feel one's energy needing to speak and to track it, you know, and the pause between speakers, you, we can sit there, we can, okay, got us, you know, that, that urgent energy to speak is really interesting to track. Like, where does that come from? What's that about? Very interesting. Hi, uh, my name is Ghidra. Um In our group, we uh, talked about... Uh, wanting full participation from people in the group. And uh, that would be supported by the confidentiality and different ways that uh, people would feel safe. Uh, One is a specific time that's yours to speak. For the shy person, uh, if they don't have their own time that they know other people aren't going to interrupt them, uh, they might not speak up. Uh, but if they know no one's going to uh, comment or have crosstalk, uh, that can be helpful. Uh, uh, also, uh, the use of a talking stick. And the bell, uh, there was a suggestion of uh, the person passing the bell, so it, you don't pass the bell until it's finished ringing, and so that creates a pause. Beautiful. Maybe just to add... Uh, another point there. I think part of what's <clears throat> been recognized, I think, by your your point is, that's quite important in groups is the recognition that there are different styles and different personalities, different cultural backgrounds. And they all may they all may have a be a big part of the background for why someone speaks a lot or doesn't speak. That they're and and being sensitive to those different dimensions, some personalities, some cultural. Um, some temperament, some shyness, and so forth. But being tuning into that can be quite important. So, so 
even just probably some people might hear the word full participation and oh, not me. Right? So, so how to work with that is, a, is an interesting challenge for groups. Yeah. In the back? On the front. Sorry, in the front. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm Ross. And I had just have a very, sort of a general comment. Uh, one thing that I appreciate is you're talking about why speech is a practice. And, and the reason for that is I've had experience in Buddhist groups, I can say a board, where wise speech comes up in the context, context of conflict. And I'm not, so I walked into to situations where things were already not good. And that, that's when I've been hearing about wise speech. So I think it's very good in forming these groups to have the purpose of the group. And I'm in a group that studies the Satipatthana Sutta but can also talk about process in the beginning as wise speech being part of the practice and not a process to follow in order that the Satipatthana group um, isn't hot, the members aren't hostile. It, it's just a perspective, a framing of it in a more positive light than some of my experiences has been. Uh, Often in terms of work, too, you know, they call in the consultant when things are bad. So um, I really, and I'm sort of looking forward to maybe doing your week long to learn more about the whole process. Hi, my name is Gail, and um, I started a a CAM group for older women in February, and um, because I knew some of the women... Um, we're new to practice. I was concerned about crosstalk and right speech and things like that. So I, um, I found that the talking stick and the bells helped slow it down. Um, I started having, um, I started it by an optional half an hour of tea and snacks, thinking that people, if they wanted to do that, could come early. And some people do, and they bring things. But what I found is when I put a break in the middle of the evening for you know people to go to the bathroom or stretch a little bit, that they went to the food. And um, I think the food actually, it's not part of our conversation, but I think it's actually really important in terms of um, it's a place where people don't have to um, be following any rules for conversation and can relax a little bit. And what I've noticed um, over the six or seven months that we've been meeting now is, is that friendships are developing as well as, you know, just the conversation that we have in the meeting and that people feel like when they go to our Sunday night sit is like 200 people and they actually know somebody and um, and they've started attending each other's events like if somebody does a poetry reading or something people are going and I think that, that that's actually the, be- the beauty of KM is that you can take it from your monthly or bi-weekly or whatever meeting and, and bring, it, bring um, spiritual friendships into support to your daily life and and that's why I brought in food, because <laughs> it's, 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 it's not just studying and how you speak. And it, it starts to feel like, oh, my God, am I being this enough and that enough? And, and really, you know, I think providing like a sacred space for the conversation, but then allowing some space for people to just breathe and, and not in a Buddhist way of breathing, 
but just, <laughs> you know, like, just relax. Just relax and have some fun with each other and realize that, you know, we all want to be more alive and we all want to be happier, and that's why we're coming together. Thank you, Gail. We have to stop now. Um, that was a good note to stop on, a reminder that with all this structure and guidelines, it's good to have some unstructured space. Um, so, Donald? It would have been nice to... Now, we're going to have a break in a moment. And we thought it was very short, so we didn't bring a lot of food. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, Take a break in a few minutes. I just wanted to <clears throat> say one or two words. Um, one is that uh, we're very uh, appreciative of all the support that's gone in for this day from <clears throat> Melanie and, and Girja with the Kalyanamita Network, for Sarah Sparling, who's been um, heroic beyond the call of duty and very, very supportive to help this uh, work smoothly. And I think most of you know this is um, a totally Adana event, right? So there's not the usual um, fee that there is uh, for most Spirit Rock um, events. And we just wanted to <clears throat> clarify um, that there's um, what there there are a few baskets in the back. Um, one of them is uh, Donna that would go towards. Um, uh, combination of Spirit Rock and Donna and myself, I think we split it 50-50 for whatever Donna goes in that basket. Is that that's correct, Sarah? Yeah. So um, Donna and I would get 50% at Spirit Rock for its role in helping all this and supporting the Kalyanamita network would be get 50%. Everyone here knows about Donna, right? I presume. To, you have to be in the Kalyanamita work network. You have to have heard at least 10 Donna talks. <laughs> <laughs> so, is anyone not familiar with Donna? Raise your hand. Okay, so it's, it means that it's in part of this network of that we're all on both sides of this a lot. I certainly am of being sometimes offering Donna's and we're really offering this, really is our Donna mm-hmm. for, for today and Spirit Rock's offering its energy and support and so forth. So, And the, the other basket is for, for the monastery, which is offering its space also as Donna. So everything is fully Donna. You know, perhaps, you know, there are some centers like IMC and Redwood City which are entirely Donna and maybe possibly Spirit Rock will be there at some point. We don't know. Uh, but I think there, there are a lot of people who would like to move more and more in that direction. So just, just to say that that's, um, that's the basis for this event and there are the baskets and any Donna would be, I'm sure, gratefully... Um, um, appreciated, received from all the people involved. And um, then I just wanted to mention, I, I have a table, uh, there's a small table in the back, and I have a few flyers. Anyone who wants to be in more personal touch with me, I have an email sign-up sheet that you can sign up on, and I have my teaching schedule and a, a reading list, which you're welcome to use for any groups. It's a reading list on Buddhism and Buddhist meditation. And then lastly, I have a few copies of the book that I did on Engaged Spiritual Life, which I think of as a practice manual for connecting inner and outer work. It also has two 
long sections on wise speech practice, partly on the ethical guidelines and partly on that inner and outer mindfulness practice. So that is in the book if you want to take a look at that. And we'll meet, we'll meet back. We'll have about a 10-minute break, and we'll meet back for looking at what happens in groups when difficult circumstances arise. So that'll be in 10 minutes. We'll uh, ring a bell a minute or two before. Yeah, we can ask. Um, should should I make the announcement about the uh, transcription, or do you want to do it? Yeah, why don't you ring the bell? So, two short announcements. Looks like some people are, how are, how are the, oh, people are coming in. Um, is there anyone who does not have the handouts that we offered? So I think we made um, about 50. Uh, there were, uh, there should be. There's four total. Four sheets total. Then you probably got here a little bit early. I believe Sarah may have a few more of these in the back. Yeah. And the second announcement is uh, we, we were wondering whether people in the Kalyanamita network would find it helpful to have a compilation of all of the transcribers' list of guidelines. Would that be, how many would find that useful? Okay. And is there anyone who would be willing to volunteer? And some of you may have your your notes like in your own notebook and may want to keep that. But is there anyone who would be willing to uh, transcribe and probably Melanie or Girja could you know, get it out to the network. Um, is that is that practical, please? Yeah. Wonderful. So, yes. Yeah, and you can. There'll be some that are said in different words, and you can do your use your editing skill and so forth. Um, so why don't we have right now? Why don't we have if if that's on a sheet of paper that you're okay to just leave with what? Sorry to with Tanya. Okay, Tanya. Tanya, that's right. You know. Okay. Uh, if you're okay with leaving that with Tanya, let's bring it up and leave it on this red, whatever, what do you call this? A hassock? Okay, on this red hassock. Okay. <laughs> Blessed hassock. So you can do that right now. If you can bring those who were the uh, transcribers... And if you have a sheet that you're willing to uh, offer for the sake of uh, the you know, sake of others, let's do that right now. Bring it up and leave it right now on the red hassock. Okay, so I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about speaking wisely in difficult situations. 
What defines a tough situation for skillful speech for most of you? I'm going to assume it's any time that hard feelings are triggered, like hurt or embarrassment, a sense of feeling left out, either for yourself or for someone else, or um, unfair treatment of someone. So I'm just going to give a few minutes of background on what's actually happening in your brain when you're emotionally triggered. When any of us experience a heightened emotional state, the blood flow in our brains actually changes. Less blood flows to the higher reasoning centers here, and more goes to the fast-acting, kind of reactive, what they call reptilian brain or limbic system. Now, this is a survival mechanism dating back to the very earliest time of our species, and it really came in handy for dodging woolly mammoths. It's not so useful in conversation. And there are several reasons why. Um, Once I'm emotionally triggered, there's what's called a refractory time. It's actually a biologically based amount of time of around 20 minutes where I just don't have access to my full analytical capacity. Literally, there's just less resources, less cognitive resources allocated. During that time, not only do I have less analytical ability, but I'm experiencing any new information, any new interactions, any new words coming in through the filter of those feelings. So if I'm angry or afraid because I had a bad performance review with my boss earlier that day or a few minutes ago, and the next thing somebody says to me is even a little bit ambiguous, I'm not going to react well. And I'm likely to blame the person who said this probably innocent comment for the fact that I'm not reacting well. I'm sure all of you have been in situations where you've seen someone else do this, right? Just checking. (laughs) Some of us have even been in situations where we've done it. (laughs) In other words, when things get heated up, I'm more likely to make what psychologists call an attribution error. This means that I attribute negative intentions or motivations to someone else based on their impact on me. I'm likely to confuse those two things. This kind of thinking can happen in a lot of situations, but it's much more likely to happen if I'm already upset or if, um, and this can either be from something said in that conversation or earlier. So what does this mean for your capacity to practice wise speech in a charged situation? At precisely the time you need to be the most skillful you have the least access to the parts of you that you need the most. I'm going to sketch out a couple of simple techniques that can help. One that Donald already mentioned is to ground in your body. The second is to name your emotions, and I mean out loud. Third is to find the third story. So one of the most powerful moves you can make when dealing with a heightened emotion is to pause and to ground in your body. Now, as Vipassana meditators, we all have a lot of experience with grounding in our bodies already. In a charged conversation, the challenges and opportunities are a little bit different because there's already a lot going on, inside and outside. The sensations associated with heightened emotions are really obvious, though, and that makes them a great place to start. So here's something that works for a lot of people. 
the first thing to do is notice the changes in your body, like a racing heart or flushed skin. The next thing, notice your breathing. Many of us move up into our chest or even use our necks to breathe when we're stressed out. Then internally acknowledge the sensations and emotions that are present. Give them permission to be there. That's a very important step. This simple series of acts shifts the focus into the body and away from the story, and it gives us a little break from whatever it is that's triggering us about that situation. So that's your first step, ground in the body. The second step is to calm down the fight-or-flight response, and that can be done by a couple of simple techniques. The first is belly breathing, which pretty much all of us have done by now. There's a couple of slight differences in the way you'll do belly breathing if you know you're actively triggered. The first is when you exhale, you exhale slowly, and you exhale through pursed lips, The second thing is at the bottom of the exhale, you actually use your abs to squeeze your belly gently against your core. And the reason I'm being so specific about this is that actually these two moves begin to activate your parasympathetic nervous response, the break in your nervous system. And they actually tell yourself at a very deep level to start to calm down, like there's no more emergency anymore. Another technique that can encourage a calming response is to intentionally soften your eyes. Take in the whole room, your peripheral vision. Martial artists actually use this before they go into a fight, so if you're around a martial artist who's softening their eyes and looking really relaxed, watch out. (laughs) Um, The reason that this works to calm your system is that our optic nerves are two of the biggest nerves in the upper part of our body. And they tie directly into that same part of the brain that tends to get anxiety-ridden. When those nerves relax, it's actually a shortcut to tell the entire nervous system to calm down. So you can do this pretty much anywhere. Um, People don't have to know you're doing it, especially if you're a little bit subtle and look away for a second. The third step is to open up perspective by using internal-wise speech. Often, if I'm starting to get upset because I've got a story about how things are, just asking myself the simple question, are you sure, is enough to begin to calm myself down and create a little bit of space. It also helps to notice the quality of your actual emotional experience while it's happening. It's a good time to remember that just because something feels compelling doesn't make it real. Basically, the intense emotions act as a reality distortion filter. And it's a good time to even say to yourself, I'm experiencing a reality distortion filter right now. I'm not suggesting that all of this needs to happen only internally. Before speaking, it is wise to check and ask yourself what your intentions are, What is the likely effect of my words if I speak right now? But once you've managed to ground yourself in these ways, the next step is to actually speak emotions honestly in the moment. This scares a lot of people. 
speaking about negative emotions, especially in this community. But really, speaking emotions honestly can really build trust and intimacy within a group setting or with friends. And because open concerns have less power than unspoken problems, naming difficult feelings helps to prevent emotional escalation, and it can also diffuse chronic group problems. So the golden rule here is that emotions need to be heard. The idea of talking about unpleasant emotions with others can be tricky, but here's the thing. One way or another, feelings are going to find their way into your communication anyway. When we're really in a heightened state, if we don't speak emotions, we leak them in our body language, in our eye contact, tone of voice, even in the words that we choose. So those, are not so un- those ways are not so helpful. And especially unhelpful are the other tendencies that tend to happen if an emotion is unacknowledged, which, mean- which comes out as blame, sarcasm, or judgment. And in fact, the urge to blame or judge is a reliable cue that some emotion you're experiencing hasn't been heard or acknowledged, either by someone else or even by yourself. So it's like a breadcrumb trail that you can follow back to find, oh, I'm actually hurt by that, instead of, oh, that person's a jerk. So what do you do? The important thing in speaking feelings is to state them simply as your experience without attributing them to other people. And this is true even if you think it's really obvious the other person is at fault. It's actually especially true then. So there's a big difference when you speak an emotion to say, I can't speak because you're always interrupting me, versus I'm feeling frustrated because I don't feel heard right now. The first one is almost guaranteed to provoke a defensive reaction. The second one, you might actually elicit a sense of sympathy or empathy or curiosity in the other person. Another benefit is that it acknowledges the emotion more directly, and that has an interesting side effect for most of us. If we name an emotion, it often lessens in intensity right then. So these first two ideas, grounding in the body and naming emotions, happen in the moment. Most of us, though, have at least two or three relationships in our lives with pretty predictable sticky points. There are things you can do in advance to ground yourself in wisdom as well. One of the most powerful is to negotiate yourself to a perspective that anthropologist William Murray calls the third side. This is the neutral or the community point of view. And don't worry about taking notes on this. As, as you, most of you might see already, it's covered in the handouts. Um, so this process is basically structured journaling and it consists of answering a series of questions. First, you thoroughly explore your story about what happened or what is happening in an ongoing way. Next, identify and write down the emotions you're experiencing about the situation. Third, explore for yourself the question, what does this say about my identity? It's important to check in because the implicit messages that you might be interpreting into the situation based on how you see yourself are likely to distort your view of what that situation is. The fourth step is to check your intentions. 
all of them, not just the highest intentions, but the lower intentions and even intentions you'd really rather not ever own. One of the reasons for doing this is that some of the less mature intentions we have often get projected onto other people in situations of conflict. So the second part of this is to repeat that exact process for the other person involved. So you check into what you think they think happened, what their feelings might be, what implications for their identity might be, and when you come to look at their intentions, see if you can find something that's not so obvious, not your first opinion about what that intention was. One of the reasons to try to be balanced is most of us don't consciously operate with negative intentions. Now you're ready to tell the third story. And the question to ask yourself then is from a neutral point of view, what has been happening? If I'm a newspaper reporter who comes in to cover the chronic tension in the Kalyanamita group, what is the story that I'm going to write? If it's a play, how would the audience describe the story? So this process is one of building a certain kind of cognitive empathy and respect for other people's perspectives. And for me, I often find it much easier to express myself honestly and compassionately, wisely, in these really charged situations if I take the time to go through this kind of inquiry beforehand. Another advantage of practicing this kind of internal wise speech is that it starts to become a skill And once it's thoroughly learned, you're a lot more able to access the wisdom of multiple perspectives, even on the fly, in the middle of a difficult conversation. And that is a powerful skill to have. Okay, so we all can probably use um, more development in being skillful when we're triggered or when we have difficult emotions come up. It's actually a big part of our practice. What happens when we're in a group which has 10 people all experiencing difficult emotions or things are happening which are challenging? You know, like what are are some of the difficult experiences which we have in small groups? If you had to just speak out, maybe I'll repeat them. Uh, what occurs to you? What are the difficult experiences in small groups? Interruptions. Interruptions. Okay. Really What's that? Really inappropriate, inappropriate content comes up. Blaming. Difficult, let's say, difficult chemistry between some of the members of the group. Yeah. Someone dominating, unconscious of doing that, perhaps someone dominating, conscious of doing that. <laughs> okay. What? Demeaning remarks. Poor tone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, difficult history, unresolved, in with, that makes trust in the group hard, at least with that person. Yeah. Please. Yeah, 
So some kind of impatience that could be individual or could be, what, emerging when things are going in, some people think it's going in circles and it's not getting to what I want, right? Something like that in terms of content. So some sort of um, sense of self that propels me into inappropriate behavior. Interpreting what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, please. Yeah, cert- certain maybe issues of um, hierarchy, whether it's um, almost implicit in someone's approach or tone, as you know, my comment matters more than yours. Those kind of issues. Yeah. The broken record phenomenon. Yeah. So someone has a, a particular issue unresolved that keeps coming up, could be personal and so forth. So maybe um, two more and then I'll, then we'll resolve them. Okay. Okay. Three, three more and then we'll resolve them. Lack of safety. Yeah. Lack of safety with a particular person and it might translate into how one feels in the whole group. Yeah. Please. Okay, someone who is interested in being an authority, fixing things, kind of almost like, okay, well, I may know more than you, so I'm going to tell you what to do or where to go. Okay. Was there one more in the back or in front and back? Okay, these will be the last two, please. (laughs) Sona believes the group guidelines do not apply to me or to that person, okay? And last one? Yeah. Anxiety about uh, time. You know, it could be in the facilitator, could be in the members of the group, uh, whatever. Or, you know, I have it could be all all sorts of expressions of that. Right. Could be, you know, I have a lot happening tomorrow. Um, I need to get home right away. I don't want us to go over one minute or it could be, you know, I have a lot happening this is only just, this meeting is only justified if it's a really good one, otherwise I'm going to be anxious. Does anyone know that one? Okay, so just a sample. <laughs> okay, so how do, we, how do we work with that? So I think what Don's suggestion is that, again, this is kind of parallels what we did before the break, that we, we really want to have the sense of there being one reference point is individual speech practice. Another reference point is group speech practice. Okay? Similarly, a reference point is individual practice with challenging experiences. And another reference point is how one works in the group with that. Of course, they're in, we want to have those interconnected. But it can be helpful at times to have this, the different reference points. In other words, no matter what is occurring in the group, I can always do my best individually. And often we may think, oh, the group is not going so well, something's not going so well, and so I'll forget about my practice. I'll forget that I can always take responsibility. This is actually a pretty radical um, stance. No matter what happens, I can practice. 
Others are not practicing. It's we're getting up against a wall. I can always do my practice. I'm getting, you know, I may be getting frustrated and so forth. It's, um, it's one of the findings which I had. I, I did a series of talks and a day long on the theme, the Dharma of difficult people, which was Dharma, difficult people was in quotation marks. And one of the breathtaking findings that I came to early on in giving those talks was that what defines a difficult person? No, no. What defines a difficult person is I have difficult experiences with that person. I mean, and we could debate that. And of course, many people could have difficult experiences with the same person. And we, we, there are certain, you know, qualities of that person. But from the standpoint of practice, really crucial to see that what is a starting point is that I have difficult experiences. So what that means is I can always take responsibility for my experience. You know, and that, again, that doesn't um, necessarily clarify what we do in a group context, but it's always a reference point and always, always really, really crucial. So that fact of when we transfer that to a group setting, it is really to really take the perspective as a group, and this could be in the guidelines, that a difficult situation is actually a potential learning situation. How likely are you to be attracted to that stance? <laughs> right, that, that here's from, um, I, I had a few quotes to bring in. One is from, this is from Shanti Deva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, 8th century. Therefore, just like a treasure appear, appearing in my house without any effort on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have a difficult person for that person assists me in my conduct of awakening. Or the Buddha. Um, this is in the famous uh, sutta, I think called the, um, I, think it, I think it's the simile of the saw, if I remember right, which is, anyway, I won't go into that, but some practitioner is very kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch that person. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch that person that it can be really understood whether that practitioner is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. So what is it to take a challenging situation in a group context as practice, as learning. So again, it's maybe like your comment, to, to have everything be practice changes the whole situation. It's rather than taking, oh, now the group's really flowing. Now I'm really practicing. I'm really getting what I came for. And when it's not going that way, distress, or it's not practice, or it's not really what I came for. There's a mindset that's really easy to slip into. So what is it like to have the whole group say, Every difficult situation is an opportunity for practice. Not easy, right? And I, I want to say, really, that everything that Don talked about and everything that we're talking about in this segment really relates to a lifetime of practice. To be skillful in groups that are having challenges, to be skillful with times when one is triggered. My experience is this is a large, ongoing project. It's not easy. It takes, can take a lot of individual work, 
on the cushion with others, with a psychologist, whatever, because what's, you know, what I was, there, we have to understand there are not only individual issues here, there also are pretty large-scale cultural issues that make being in groups difficult, such as being in a culture of individualism. Need I mention that? <laughs> that what that means is that most of us are not trained to function well in groups. You know, that the paradigm in education is that we work alone, right? How many schools can you write an essay with someone else and actually collaborate? You know, a lot of the system is um, not collaborative. It tends even to be adversarial, a lot of our professions like law. And so the culture, you know, one sociologist said it's not just individualism, it's hyper-individualism, you know. And, of course, that's, you know, there are ways in which that's not true. But to know that we have a culture of individualism, that uh, we don't have much training in being with groups, that we often, as I mentioned earlier, don't have clear intentions in being with groups, Often our Buddhist practice is primarily focused on the cushion, so we don't necessarily have a lot of clear guidance in terms of practice about being in groups. Add to that the fact that we bring our stuff to groups, that a few of us still have unconscious material not fully worked out. Then we've all worked it out. That's why we're up here. Okay. Um, But it's like, you know, it's like those cartoons of of a... uh, two people meeting for like for a first date or something and you know in the cartoon where they're each carrying a large bag between them behind them right and they're meeting and the bag is their stuff you know their their shadow material or whatever we want to call it and it's like the bags are like the people are like uh, this tall and the bag is twice as large as their height right and they're carrying it behind them and that is not untrue of group situations you know we're all have that stuff and so that's what I mean, it's a lifetime of work, you know, and that it's challenging, it's challenging personally to see where we get triggered and to take that as practice. And with groups, it's, it's equally challenging. And so what, what helps in groups given that situation? Taking this practice is key. Working with the guidelines is really, really crucial. So in the moment when there's something challenging come up, I think it's helpful to think we go right back to the core of our practice. How do, we, you know, how do we do that? One way is, I think, follows from what Dawn was saying, that we try to use mindfulness, and there can be a kind of group mindfulness, just to name what's happening in the group in a neutral way is really, really crucial. It's much like, sometimes I think the core of our practice individually is something like this. We're mindful of what's happening as best we can be, and then on the basis of our mindfulness, we we try, we summon our best compassion and our best wisdom and formulate an intention for how to respond in that moment. And then we act. It's kind of like, and that's all we do moment by moment. It's kind of mindfulness tells us what's happening. And then we try to summon our best wisdom and compassion and formulate an intention. What should I do? And then we act as best we can, something like that. And so the mindfulness part is really crucial to name what's happening in the group. And again, so much of this is facilitated when the group has an understanding that conflicts or difficulties are both unavoidable and there actually can be tremendous learning. You know, a group which has worked through difficult material 
together, as again, Dawn was saying this, will be a much tighter group. It'll be much more able to work in the future with difficult stuff. Same thing, we know that probably interpersonally. If we've worked through some difficult material with another person, there's more intimacy. And, and it's, that history permits us to work with situations further. So having that um, intention is so crucial. And then we can, we can uh, be mindful. Again, naming something neutrally. When we turn to what is skillful speech, when a conflict comes up, this is a lot of what we emphasize when we do this uh, one-week retreat and work with uh, nonviolent communication, which is a very helpful methodology for using language in skillful ways in tense situations. And, the, and a lot of the key is that coming back to one's own experience, naming something in neutral language. So you wanna, we want to be very, very careful of our actual language. Is our language... Go, does our language have hidden assumptions that might imply a few things? Might imply, I'm right, you're wrong. That's going to tend to polarize. We want to be very careful of our language. What kind of language will tend to polarize, say, I'm right, you're wrong, will tend to have a hidden narrative or story or assumption that often that you are the problem or that there's a problem and you know it's not, I'm not involved. So we want to use language, like as Don was saying, that names what I'm experiencing without those interpretations as much as possible. That is a lifetime of work to really be able to do that skillfully. That takes continual practice because, again, in the, in, the, in the difficult situations, often our practice goes out the window, at least for a while. You know, when we're triggered, we're flooded, uh, physiologically and so forth. So just to know that. So to use language skillfully, to, um, to invoke core values. That's when we want to go back to our guidelines. Can we, at a moment of difficulty, for someone to say, could we be guided by our guidelines now, is tremendous. And again, we all forget that, but it's so crucial. Timeouts, great technique. Sometimes just to take a time out for five minutes, that's the mindfulness bell during groups. You know, that, I don't know if that was mentioned, but the, the mindfulness bell is something one rings every 20 minutes, everyone pauses. Timeouts are incredible. You know, in some of the groups I've been with, there was a mindfulness bell every 20 minutes, and sometimes people used it exactly at a moment of tension. A moment of tension arises, someone rings the bell, everyone breathes three times, and then it's different than it, used to, than it would have been. So maybe the last thing to say is ultimately the practice is of learning to be comfortable with the uncomfortable in a group context, which is not easy. Most of us don't want that, but that's what the practice is. It's learning to be comfortable, and then there's a whole methodology of skillful speech. The core of it is being radically what we might call radically reflexive to one's own experience, being very careful with blaming, judging, uh, interpreting in ways that imply one person wrong, one person right, that often, if it's quite difficult, then we go, go to the place where we just can tell our stories and let it sort out. And ultimately, last thing I'll say, 
is ultimately as we practice more and more, we actually develop a faith in our good intentions. It may take time, but that if we stay with our core intentions and our core values and really keep coming back to them, it could be just to say compassion. You know, someone in a group could just say at a given moment, could we hold everything with compassion? And even though some people might, if the per- there's a difficult chemistry, that person, oh, there's that person being a goody-goody Buddhist again. <laughs> right, but, um, you know, we have to listen through to what the essence is. Another, you know, it's another important point. Empathy, listening beneath the words to the deeper needs and the deeper values. So, please. Since we're running a little bit behind, I think if you're open to it, I would like to move directly to the group scenario. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Sounds great. Great. Um, See, was there anxiety about time? <laughs> I was not experiencing I was, I was anxiety. Hiding, no. You were hiding it. Okay. <laughs> he was hiding it very well, wasn't he? <laughs> so um, we had in mind that you break out again into small groups, um, maybe four or five people a piece. We can leave it a little bit loose. And um, I'm going to give you two different scenarios. I'm going to give you one now. We'll ring the bell in a few minutes and give you another exercise in a moment. But the first one is um, something a few of you brought up, actually, during the, the last call out. This is, um, you have a person who is dominating the group. And they're doing it by holding forth about either their ideas about certain issues or um, their very emotionally charged kind of sense of something going on um, either in the group or in their life. The things that they're doing specifically are cutting other people off. They're shifting the subject matter to their own concerns and um, generally being long-winded. They're tending to be energetic and self-focused. And what we're hoping you'll do is get into groups of four or five And using some of the things we've talked about today, come up with a strategy of what you think you might do. So find some other folks. I will ring the bell in seven to ten minutes and um, call you back. You have seven? Let's break you into two. Okay. There's another large group in the back. Yeah. Okay, so if we have more than six people in a group, um, if we have more than six people in a group, consider breaking yourself into two smaller groups. You have a smaller group. Okay, the smaller group over here could use a couple of people. Any, anyone interested in migrating? Let's have no group larger than five. Sure. Let's just give it a moment to settle. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm wondering if the group at the back, because we're we don't have much too much time, we maximize individuals' chance to speak. If you if you're in a little smaller group, you're welcome to stay in group of seven, but it'll be be less chance for each person to speak. Okay, so I'm just going to explain this scenario again. 
And this is a chance to practice pausing a little bit, yielding space to each other graciously, and active listening, this actual conversation. The scenario that you're discussing is what are some of the things you can do to skillfully communicate to a person who is dominating the group, to deal with that as a group process issue. So this is a person who's long-winded, they're cutting other people off, shifting the subject matter to their own thing. And this is just brainstorming about some ideas. So you're welcome to write those down. We'll do a brief debrief after you finish talking. Question? Is the offender in the group? No, this is not a role enactment. <laughs> oh, you can try to do it that way if you wish. <laughs> The group, you are brainstorming what to do in this situation. They're not there. You're not role acting. You're just brainstorming what to do in this situation. This would, this would be like if you were in a support group for people in groups and you came together. <laughs> <laughs> and you came together just to discuss this common problem and come up with a solution. Let's say this is a... Anything that occurs to you. Okay. Okay. So just um, if we could hear from a few members of the different groups, just one or two words to describe the experience of actually having been doing this. About what you learned. You know, I'm thinking maybe um, I think what we want to get at is somehow the um, what they would do. So right. So a few words about what you learned about what you might do. Please. Are you going to track? Anyone? Okay. Mm-hmm. Over to the right. Um, over here. We came up with three things. The first was to suggest a talking stick. The second one was to say, our time is limited. Can you finish up so more people can contribute? And the third was to acknowledge the speaker and then say to someone else, what do you think? Or engage someone else in the group and bring them in. Great, thank you. Other ideas? Well, Don, you had mentioned that uh, that within the group that the, everyone always has the right intention. Um, and so on that line, uh, w- we were talking about how the if we had acknowledged the person for having the correct intention and then actually uh, so that we know that because we're in the group, there is a place where we're all, we're all common, have a common ground, then from that place say, and now we'd like to hear some more balance, have more balance so that we get to perspectives of some of the other people mm-hmm. that have not shared, so that we all stay on the same path. So that rather than then make the person wrong, that we support them with their contribution, and then also let them know that other people's contribution are equally as valuable. 
Beautiful. So you acknowledge them and you make a suggestion for a correction. Um, do we have time for one more? Anybody? Um, yeah, our ideas in the group were to bring the person back into the present because often when a person starts rattling off, so to speak, and taking too much time, they go way out, all out, and all back into the past and forward in the future. So um, that seems to be one of the core values, to be in the presence and remain there. And um, at the same time, have the facilitator um, help the group to establish or, or reestablish um, the ground rules, include that person, however, with it um, in that process. And um, a third point was um, to establish everybody's need in the presence in that group. And again, that would include the person um, that seems to become the problem. And then take it from there and have the facilitator. Um, um, actually um, um, establish, no, well, yeah, I guess um, actually enforce um, the guidelines, for instance, the time limitation that's saying, please wrap up within the next 30 seconds, and then we go on to the next person. Great, thank you. I'm going to introduce, uh, thank you, Donald. I, I just had one, one little yes. thought that... Um, but actually, if we had a day or two, we would do a training like with 20 difficult situations and do something like this, more extended time, do role plays, have people be, bring out their worst offensive behavior <laughs> <laughs> and see what we would do. So it's actually very right, but we're trying to get a taste of it here, just so you know. So your second scenario to brainstorm about is something that someone brought up in this group today, which is the person who has appointed themselves the head therapist, head teacher, head fixer of your group without the group's buy-in. So um, please start. We'll ring a bell in a few minutes. What do you do? <laughs> Okay, so wrapping up. Um, if there's anyone from a group that hasn't spoken yet but wants to talk about what they learned in this, yes. Just a moment, waiting for the mic. I'm down here in front, Melanie. I hope that I get this right. Um, we talked about um, essentially modeling the behavior for the person, um, showing that um, if one is kind, respectful, and um, <laughs> that others in the group will also take on that uh, manner, and that will help um, equalize things. Uh, related to that, acknowledgement of that person and really inquiring about what they have to offer uh, might establish a sense of equality in the group 
that there is not necessarily one person who is an authority. Um, and also uh, making an effort to understand the need beneath the impulse to dominate. Um, that was mentioned as well as um, backtracking a little bit and uh, asking the group, well, how will we decide to choose a, a leader? Great. Thank you. We have time for one more. Anyone? Quick debrief. Uh, wait for the mic, please. Oh, sorry. Thank you. One of the responses that came up in both scenarios was to take the person who was behaving that way aside out of the group context. And I haven't heard that brought up, so I'm just curious myself which when that would be appropriate, rather than addressing it right in the, the group? Okay. Well, with, with that, maybe we'll... One more. Okay. Um. My friend Ghidra just was started to bring something up just at the, when the bell rang, and that is uh, we have belonged to groups where there's sort of a processing at the end of the meeting where how did you feel about the meeting? And somebody might be very frank and say that they were extremely frustrated and say, why? Part of the rule is you may have been frustrated at something that I did, but I don't respond to it when you're at the end, when you're saying you were frustrated with me because. I mean, you may not, you know, however you wisely put it. But um, the fact that you process it and say something at the end of the meeting in that safe environment where you don't have to resolve anything at that time, the message gets out. And people can reflect upon that until the next meeting. Thank you. Wonderful. So we're about to move into a little bit of group discussion. We just wanted to get a show of hands if people would prefer to have a shorter discussion and end on time or go over for about five minutes. Get a sense of who would rather... Go How many of you would not be willing to go over five minutes? Okay, so, okay, so we'll honor that. Um, yeah, I just wanted to respond to, I think, Allison's question about uh, taking someone aside. Um, all of this comes down to skillful means and being sensitive to the person. And there are some people for whom the slightest kind of criticism in a public way triggers them. And probably that some of that physiological reaction kicks in and they actually literally in a public situation might not be able to hear anything. So for some people it could be very, very skillful to take them aside in a safer environment and then to use the language in which one would be very careful about blaming but just to say something like, I was feeling frustrated because I wanted to, sometimes I wanted to speak and it was hard for me to get in or I was wanting to hear X or Y and they didn't, you know, and it was hard to find space for them, something like that. And, and just to know that um, probably some of us would continually be, um, be hard for us to hear anything which could be possibly interpreted as criticism. So, again, we're, 
I think I like what uh, you, you said. Your name is uh, uh, Ross. Yeah, that Ross was saying that what we're looking at now are sort of higher degree of difficulty. This is like the seven, eight, nine, ten on a scale of ten, and where we practice is at the lower degree of difficulties. That's why it's so crucial. Like exactly your point not just to bring all this in when there's a crisis or difficulty or tension or conflict, but to be practicing a form of wise speech all the time, building the capacities at lower degree of difficulties. And then when the higher degree of difficulties come in, they're there. If we only bring these tools out at lower degree of difficulties, won't work actually. And so what that means is using language skillfully all the time, not just when there's a problem, trying to you know, speak, use that more I-related language um, all the time. So, yeah, important point there. So other, other reflections, either about the exercise we did or about anything that for you feels unresolved from our, um, our time so far. Um, and let's use the microphone again uh, with Jeremy, please. Yeah, um, one thing that I feel we haven't kind of touched on today so much is more like the low-lying issues. Like, so if you, perhaps you, we, we, we have a group where everyone is respectful of the space and so not, none of these sort of extreme issues necessarily arise. But there might be like a, a general discomfort that maybe this particular part of the session is taking too long and maybe there's not enough time for, for something else. And so I'm kind of wondering if maybe we can spend a moment on that kind of issue. And I think perhaps the um, idea we had of like a check-in at the end or, 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 sort of, or, or other techniques like that to make sure that minor things don't become major over a while rather yeah. than one particular That's extreme. a great, great question. And... Um, Two, two thoughts. One, one is that uh, uh, we, haven't, we haven't mentioned the use of check-ins. Check-ins and check-outs are great for small groups as well as hotels. Sorry. <laughs> Couldn't resist. It was, the language sounds like a hotel or something, doesn't it? Kind of interesting. Um, but... Um, we haven't mentioned check-ins, and those can be incredibly valuable for uh, having people report how they are so we know if someone has come from a really hard day or has had a lot of tension or stuff is happening or someone close to that person is dying or whatever. That is incredibly valuable information to be able to be empathic and know where that person is coming from. So check-ins are really, really valuable. A lot could be said about them. What I have found generally helpful is to have them be timed. I was once in a group which one Sunday morning we had a four-hour session and there were no time limits to check-ins. And the, we started at 9 and the check-ins ended at 11.45 that morning. And then we were ready for checkout. <laughs> it was really, like I was like, only in California. So, so um but, but better is best I find to have them timed and to, you know, to have a, f- a few minutes, two or three minutes, depending on the length of the group. And then having the check-in is great, to, you know. And 
um, at the end and can really note what's happening. And the other thing is to remember, we haven't talked a lot about group dynamics and there, there are phases of group development. You know, that if you read the literature on groups uh, or do a, you know, a workshop on groups, one of the first topics is, is that there are phases of group development, basically where there's more and more safety, comfort, ability to handle issues and so forth. And there are these phases that groups go through. And you have, kind of have to go through the whole phases. And the first phase is like the honeymoon phase and everyone's friendly and everyone's excited. And then you kind of get into, okay, and then the first issues come up. Oh my God, it's not paradise. you know. And, and, and then you find ways. And having guidelines at the beginning is really great because you can actually work with that. And so just to know that there are phases and it takes time to really develop a mature group, and you kind of have to go through stuff to really get there, and that can give some patience, and even to, you know, bring in that, you know, that could be something that might be the topic of another session if we wanted to, you know, to have something on group dynamics, group phases. So maybe time for uh, one more, and then we're going to have your, yeah, one more, and then we'll go to uh, Melanie's going to. Uh, kind of do next steps and where we go from here. Yeah, one of my interests was the Kalyan Mitta group, and I'm interested in, in starting one. Yeah. And looking at all these potential problems, <laughs> how, how do you best handle the very front-end process? Who shall we let in and, and, uh, and, and under what uh, assumptions and, and understandings they should have before yeah, joining. It's a great question. And who should you let in? Given the, should you demand, uh, you know, a FBI security check, <laughs> and so forth? Um, um, yeah, complex question. Um, I think it's generally uh, very helpful to have people. It, it depends on what kind of group it is. For example, when we were doing the base groups we did generally have interviews with people. And it was very, very occasional, but there was occasionally people we did not let in the group because we made the assessment. Now, this was groups with facilitators, a little bit different from peer groups. But we made the assessments that, and this happened like maybe two or three times over 10 years, so it's not very often. But occasionally there were people who we thought would be interpersonally um, too disruptive. And we, uh, but generally... And other, but there can be other criteria. So there could be criteria of, um, you know, one or two years sitting practice. Some could be some criteria which actually meet the needs of the group. So that's where you'd want to look. Are there actual criteria which help accomplish the core intentions of the group? And those are, in a sense, uh, not, not really screening people per se, but you're um, working, uh, working to... Uh, cl be clear what kind of basis you want there to be. It could be, you know, you want people to have a basis. Maybe you have a, a group that has, everyone has to have done one or two retreats, something like that. That's completely legitimate. It also could be helpful. The last thing I'll say is to actually have um, some kind of a, a group meeting before the group gets together and just kind of sense things out, you know, and you know, just talk informally about what you might like. That can often be quite helpful. So differences, whether they're facilitators or not, peer groups and so forth. But the main thing is to have 
clear intentions, have people buy into the intentions ahead of time, and possibly have criteria that support the accomplishment of those intentions. Okay, thanks. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of checkouts, we uh, thought that we would uh, kind of check in with everybody here at the end of this workshop. Um, Spirit Rock is, has set up uh, regular workshops that we're doing to support the Kalyanamita Network. And we do have another event coming up in September. It will be a, an event at Spirit Rock in the Upper Retreat Hall, another Donna event like this. And um, we do not yet have a, uh, an agenda or a teacher for this, uh, but we would like to kind of get a sense from everybody today about, um, first off, would you like to see workshops like this continue? Secondly, uh, what kind of, of uh, topics are useful and helpful to people? And third, uh, if we're going to be doing something in September, would you like to continue on uh, perhaps topics like we're doing today in more detail, or is there something else that we, you would like to put out there for consideration? So we'd love to have your thoughts if you care to share those briefly. We just have a couple minutes. Well, I'm, I'm, could I just jump in? Please. Given the time... Would it be helpful to, since those are three questions, which probably could have like a straw poll without words, just yes or no, uh, would it be valuable to do that? Okay. We're also going to do a survey monkey, and um, we would love to have all of you take the time to share your thoughts on that and, and get back to us with, with what you feel you would like to see offered. So, well, what I was suggesting was just, what was your first question? Has this been has this been helpful? And would you like to see workshops along this vein continue? Yes. Y yes. Okay. Great. Thank you. And second question. Uh, September. We've got a uh, a wonderful opportunity in September. It will be September 11th. Please mark your calendars. We have the Upper Retreat Hall at Spirit Rock, and we'll be holding a, a special Kalyanamita Day there. I'm sorry. In the afternoon, right. And so uh, we're still in the, the developmental stages at this point, and it's a great time for you to, to offer your input about what you would like to see there and what would be helpful in terms of uh, topics. So, yes, Sarah. Raise your hand if you would be willing to stay longer. And what was the last question? It was it was about um, right. Sure. And the, but the last question was how many of you would like to see something like a continuation of this group of what we did today. Um, we could do it in the East Bay, but uh, September 11th would, would be at Spirit Rock. That's not negotiable. Yeah. Okay. 
Great. Well, we have uh, reached our, our, our cutoff time here. So I would really like to, uh, to thank Donald and Don for this wonderful presentation. And it's a, uh, it's a real blessing and a very generous gift. Thank you very, thank you. very much. Pleasure. <laughs> And let, and let us know what you find out. Thank you to Sarah. And let, let us know what you find out, because this is all to be applied, right? So this is all... Report back. Let us know, let us know what you find, what's helpful, and all of these questions. So thank you so much. Thank you, everyone.